What's up, guys? How we doing? Yeah, I appreciate the, the word good. Again, we've had this conversation, right, guys? Woo is a weird response. You guys, this is kind of my thing, right? I'm going to get on my little soapbox, doop, 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 right? And if you walk down the street and someone's like, hey, how are you? And you go, woo, right? Doesn't translate. But here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask you to talk to me tonight and say things. Um, but mostly it's going to be repeating stuff. So you don't need to have like a full conversation with me. But usually I'll tell you what to say. And then if you just say it, we'll be hunky-dory. Does that sound good? Someone say, yup. I like that. Hey, we're finishing our Twisted Scripture series tonight. Someone say Twisted. Okay. We've been, we've been finding these things that maybe, maybe we've heard so many times over and over, or, or they've been kind of lodged in our brain somewhere from a, a church background. We heard them in pop culture, whatever. Th these, these phrases or parts of verses we've heard that have been taken, pulled out of their context, the original meaning, to mean all kinds of crazy stuff. And as we, as we really examine that, we realize like, oh, we're starting to make scripture like fight itself, or we're starting to make God sound like he's, like he's bipolar. He, one day he loves us, the other day he doesn't, what, whatever's going on. As we look at what each passage says, as we find the meaning, we actually find life and truth and hope and God being faithful and consistent over and over. It's good news. Tonight's twist of scripture, you, you might have heard this one million times and never realized it, it could get twisted. Here's the twist. God is love. Can you put that up there for me, Jenny? Jenny was distracted by Sabrina and a baby back there. God is love. Someone say love. God is love. This is a, a beautiful expression, and, and even people that wouldn't claim Christianity, wouldn't even claim faith, might, might love this idea that God is love. But we're talking about it in a Twisted Scripture series for a reason. Because when we just grab that phrase, we actually begin to, to get it twisted in three different ways. The first way is just the logic of it. Someone say logic. Like this isn't a class for you, but, but let me just say this. We, we do something where we, we flip-flop the phrase. So we go, okay, if God is love, then therefore love is God. Right? We kind of make it an equation. If A equals B, then B equals A. We can, we can flip them back and forth. And, and we start to, to look for instances where, where we think there's love out there somewhere. And we go, God must love that because it's love. Right? If, if two people love each other, God must love that love. Right? Any instance of love, God must be for that. He must be about that. Anywhere we see love, it must be something from God. But here's one way that gets twisted. Just the logic of it doesn't quite work out, right? Like Kirkwood basketball players are tall, okay? Generally, I don't know. I don't know if you're a Kirkwood basketball player, whatever. Um, but flipping it would be like saying, okay, if anything's tall, then it must be a Kirkwood basketball player, right? Giraffe, sign them up for the team. Get them a, a custom-tailored jersey, right? Giraffes are tall, therefore they must – or tall guys. Some of you dudes are tall and you don't play basketball, and you've been told so many times, right? I see the look. You're like, yep, that's me. I'm gangly. I can't help it, right? I can't. I mean, that's just life for some of us, okay? Not me. I've never been accused of being tall. Don't. But here's where that plays out, right? Salt staff play spike ball. Therefore, if you play spike ball, you're a salt staffer now. Congratulations. It was that easy. Who knew, right? Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. If you, if you try to actually apply that logic anywhere else, we, we realize that it doesn't work. And it, it also does this thing where it simplifies God to one attribute to make him fight himself. Right? If we say God is love and we kind of hold that as the highest attribute of God, 
then all of a sudden we begin asking questions like, well, if God is loving, then why would he send anyone to hell? If God is loving, then, then why would he care about stuff like sin or holiness or righteousness? If God is loving, then how could he be condemning and judging? Like maybe you've heard that argument put, pushed against your faith. Maybe you've even asked those questions yourself. What we're doing is we're taking one attribute of God and we're actually making God fight himself when he, he never does that. He's not in contradiction. He's not in tension. We've twisted it and, and we've, we've gotten it mixed up. Love isn't opposed to justice. Love isn't opposed to holiness. God means something specifically when he says love. Another way we get it twisted is just the, the word love, the definition of love. Like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah, who said it? Okay. Baby, don't hurt me no more, right? Like, if, if someone stopped you on the street and said, define love or tell me what you love, like, I can start listing things like, I love my wife. I love my sweet baby girl. I love sushi. I don't love sushi the way I love my wife, right? I mean, two rolls is a snack, four rolls is beginning to get a meal there. But, like, I, I love coffee. I love reading. I, I, I love all these things. I love the salt stuff. I'm going to tell them that. But but I don't mean these things the exact same way, right? We don't use the word love to mean the same thing every time we use it. So, so when we say God is love, we got to figure out what kind of love. In fact, we'll get into that in the text. Like there are four different Greek words for love. John uses a specific one. He says God is love. The last way we twist it is even just taking it out of context. A, a professor in college said a, a text without a context is a pretext. That's fancy. Someone say pretext. Pretext is just a bad excuse, right? A text without a context is just a bad excuse to make it say whatever you want. Like, for example, Luke 6.30 says, Give to anyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So, if I ask you for five bucks, the Bible says you got to give it to me, and you can't ask for it back. Sucka. Right? It's right there. I can quote it to you. I'll read it again if you want. Like, no, it's not saying that, but if but if I already want something, if I already believe something, I can find a verse to make it say something I, I think it's saying when it's really not saying that thing it's saying at all, right? Clear as mud. We got we to gotta figure out what the context is because the Bible does have meaning. It has something important to tell you and me. God has meaning in every passage, but it's through the context, not skimming the surface. So what, what's the context of our passage? It, it means something for you. And I've been praying that, that its meaning would actually be transformative for you, that your life would change as a result of understanding what it really means to say God is love. In fact, as we get into the, the heart of our passage, John, the guy who wrote it, he's asking something really difficult of his original readers. He's asking something of people who were living under persecution and they had false teachers coming in and they were struggling with idols in their hearts and their lives. He's saying, okay, you need to turn your attention from yourself and your struggles and on to others. The command in this passage is love one another. Now, if you've been around Christianity any length of time at all, you probably have heard that one before, right? Love one another, love other people. Duh, Christians, it should be about that, right? It's been one of Jesus' central commands from the beginning, but ask yourself for a second, like self-reflection, how are we doing at that? Like, even if you're not a Christian, just take a step back and look at Christianity and go, how are Christians doing at loving each other? Think practically, intentionally, helpfully. Do we do a good job of that? I don't think so. 
like the way that we fight and, and we beat each other up and we come down hard on each other. Maybe you've seen battles on the internet about how we respond to, to systemic injustice or churches closing or the pandemic. Christians are fighting each other left, right, and center. We're not very good at loving one another. That's not just them out there. I'm not good at loving other Christians. I'm too busy, man. I'm hurried. I got my own stuff to deal with. Like, how do I have time and energy to love other people? I got to figure my stuff out, right? How about you? Like, how are you doing at loving other Christians around you? Like, not just tolerating, not just hanging out, not just having like, like friendly, you know, meme sessions where you're just texting back and forth all night long and not sleeping or whatever. How are you actually doing it practically, specifically, intentionally loving other believers, seeking their good? Are there lingering tensions in your connection group? Do you have long-term broken relationships with other Christians? So if you see them at Salt Company or you see them on Sunday, you go the other way. You don't talk anymore. Have you even put yourself in the kind of places where you could have those relationships? Or are you kind of doing a lone range of Christianity where it's just you solo or you and one friend? Love one another. Like obeying this central commandment in the passage, one of the clearest commandments of Scripture, is really hard. Like, Have you met other Christians? They're terrible, right? They're not a lot of fun. And again, some of you might not be Christians because you agree with what I'm saying right now. Christians are bad at loving each other. Like, it's not enough to know it's a command. How do we actually obey this? For people with our own struggles, our own burdens, our own frustrations, when you're dealing with your own stuff, how are you supposed to go out of your way and love other people? What are we supposed to be doing here? Turn your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. John the Apostle is writing to churches that are in kind of modern-day Turkey around Ephesus. He was writing this as an old man. He's the guy that wrote the gospel according to John in Revelation. He kind of riffs on some similar themes here as in, in the gospel he wrote, the account. So this church, 1 John chapter 4, this church was faced with an early heresy, a false teaching that all Jesus really wanted for you was just to be really spiritual in your soul, but your obedience didn't really matter. Like you could do whatever you want as long as you kind of were just like a spiritual person. He's also dealing with the false teaching that, man, Jesus probably isn't even coming back. So why bother? Why does it matter? Just get spiritual and, and don't worry, on the rest. worry about the rest. So throughout the book, John riffs on these themes like, you know, God does care about your obedience. Jesus is faithful. Don't move from the gospel. And the most practical obedience he brings up over and over and over again is this command to love one another, like care for one another. Why? I mean, think about it, like partially because they were a persecuted minority. They had no social clout. They had no ability to influence politics. They didn't have money in the bank. They, they needed each other. So like, don't move from the gospel and take care of each other. But it's, it's deeper than that. So look at, look at the passage with me and we'll figure out where he's going. What, what is this deeper message that actually empowers our obedience as well? How do we get motivated in this? First John 4, verses 7 through 12. And, and let me just tell you, there's going to be four key aspects to living this out, kind of the flow of the passage. He's going to talk about our identity, give us the command, give us an example, and then motivate us. I'll, I'll highlight those as we go through, okay? Someone say, okay. Oh, wow. Whew, young scholars. Let's go. Let's get into it. First John 
chapter 4, verse 7. Let me read it to us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He starts with this word, beloved, right? It's an identity term. He's saying, this is who you are. You are loved people. Before he ever gets the command, he tells them the kind of person they already are. Right, their obedience doesn't determine their identity. Their identity comes first, and that's a pattern throughout all of Scripture. In fact, if you think back to the Exodus, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He rescues them first, and then he gives them his commands. Then he says, walk with me like this. Identity comes first. Identity is foundational to obedience. So then comes the command, love one another. It's talking about loving other people in the family of faith, loving other Christians. It's not a command just to love everyone out in the world. Like Christians are supposed to be loving people. Our love should overflow. But, but foundationally, practically, we got to start loving each other first. Maybe that's controversial in your mind. Like maybe you, you, you don't agree that our, our love should kind of start here, but it's definitely clear through all of Scripture. If you're bad at loving other Christians, you are not on mission. I don't care how much of an evangelist you think you are. If you're bad at loving other Christians, you're not obeying this clear command. So he he follows the command up. He says, for love is from God. This isn't the kind of love that's just mustered up, just try harder to love as if it's something you already had. You need outside help to obey the command. Like you don't have enough of it in you to go off and do it. You need help from the outside to begin loving people like this. And at the end of the verse, he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because this kind of love is is from God. The only way to access it is to receive it from God. We receive it through our identity as born-again people, as people who know God. You guys heard the term born-again? Someone raise your hand. Yep. This is a term actually Jesus made up. He was talking to a religious leader in John chapter 3, and this religious leader is like, how do I get in the kingdom? Like, Jesus, I I see what you're doing. I see your power. I see your teaching. How do I get in on that? And and he looks at this teacher, this old guy, and he goes, well, man, you got to get born again, which was a stumper, right? Picture yourself there. If someone comes to you and goes, hey, you got to get born a second time. Dude's obvious thing is like, well, I can't get back into my mom, right? Sorry, Jesus. Like, whatever, bro. I don't know what to do with that. But but Jesus is, is trying to tell us you can't clean up your act enough to join God in his mission. Like you can't try hard enough to make this thing happen. You can't go to God with a list of how hard you've tried, how many people you've tried to love and go, am I in yet? Am I good enough yet? He goes, something has to happen in you and to you to become this kind of person. God needs to give you new birth through faith. And it's just an act of his grace. Like you can't get yourself born again, but God can give you new life. He can make you a born-again kind of person. John says you have to be born of God and know God. He doesn't say know about God. He doesn't say no religious answers. He says know God personally, practically, intimately. You have to have a relationship with God, not just not know facts about God. You do this through being born into his family. And Romans 8, if you've been around this summer at Veritas, we've been going through this incredible passage that talks about adoption. It talks about God's love in action to make us his people. Our identity is directly tied to our ability to obey this command. Identity comes first. 
it's foundational to your obedience. And guys, let me just say, like, I think there's some of you here that came really ready to find a list of things to obey, but you haven't received an identity. Like, if you're taking notes or even just in your mind, like, write the question, do I have this identity? Have I received this identity? Again, it's not about if you've tried enough or done enough. Before you write down the command, make sure you have this identity and receive it by grace through faith. Let's move on. Verse 8. John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's our twisted scripture. John sets up a contrast for us, right? He's doing the opposite. If you don't love each other, if you dislike Christians, if your life doesn't bend towards or grow towards loving one another, obeying this command, obviously you don't know God because God is love. It's an essential attribute. It's part of his character. Don't tell me you're an athlete if you never hit the gym or the field. Don't tell me you're a musician if you never sing a note or play an instrument. Don't tell me you're a Christian if you never love other Christians. And he says, God is love. Here's the word we need to get right. He uses a specific Greek word. It's agape. Someone say agape. It's not agape, right? Agape. It's, you got to get your Greek pants on and, and pronounce things weird. Um, raise your hand if you've heard that word agape before. Okay, many of you have heard it, even from a church background. Here's the deal. Greek has these kind of four words for love. If you want to know more, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. But, but the first kind of love is just affection. It's just liking stuff, right? I, I love pizza. I love sushi. I love coffee. It's, it's like a weak bond. It's kind of a proximity thing. In fact, maybe some of your, your friends, you've actually seen this happen, where you were really good friends in high school and then you went to college. And all of a sudden, being farther away, you kind of, you're not really friends anymore, right? Like in high school, you're like, I love you. Sign my yearbook. We're going to be in this forever. And then like second semester freshman year, you're like, who again? Who are you, right? Are we still friends on whatever? Okay. Like it's just a proximity thing, right? It's, it's not a bad deal, but it's a really weak bond. There's another kind of love, philea. It's brotherly love. It, it's a bond of friendship. Philadelphia is named after this, right? The city of brotherly love. Someone should tell Philadelphians that. Um, there, it's a deep kind of friendship that's chosen. Like you choose this kind of love with other people. It's worked on. I have friends that have moved across the country that when we pick up the phone, we get deep into life, right? Like, I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but maybe when college is over and you scatter, there'll be certain people that you're like, no, no, I, I want to hear from them. Because when I hear from them, they get me, right? They know where I've been. They know what I'm going through. I got a friend who moved to California, and next week we're going to talk on the phone. And I know as soon as I pick up the phone, like, we've got this history, and we've been working together on it. And we disagree on a lot of things, but we have philea together. We, we love each other like that. A third kind of love is eros. Someone say eros. You can get a little span if you need eros, right? Like this is romance, romantic love. But it's not, it's not just like, like desire for someone. It, it's not lust. It, it's, it's an attraction. It's a love for one person. Like when, when we say um, love at first sight, that's the kind of thing we're saying, man, that's my person, right? In, in a healthy marriage, it endures for years. But this is also the kind of love that people talk about when they say we fell out of love, right? 
like misunderstandings or lack of trust comes up there and, and, and people begin to grow apart where, where Eros breaks down and they're kind of left with just sort of proximity. And even then they start to question like, man, is this even worth it? There's too much baggage. There's too many misunderstandings. Eros begins to die away. Finally, there's agape. Agape is like Christian love. That's how people define it now because there's, there's no other way to really grab it. John kind of uses this word and he, he gives it a meaning that transcends all other meaning it had before. It's a selfless, self-giving love, regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation. It's the kind of love that is really hard to do. And frankly, I was trying to figure out, like, what's, a, what's an illustration for it, whatever. And the closest I can come up to is, like, a, a mom loving a kid. But even then, that's not fully agape because some kids, let's just be real, are a bit of a pill. Okay, not my sweet baby girl, but I was, I was praying for my wife that she, like, little girl would sleep tonight because sometimes that, that girl is difficult. It's a good thing God made her cute, right? There, there's, no, there's no, like, good illustration for agape because agape is is something that we're being told about, we're invited into, not just something we discover. Like when I tell you about friendships, you can think of people. When I tell you about sushi, you can think of sushi. When I tell you about Eros, some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm thinking of Eros right now, whatever. Um, when I tell you about agape, man, I, I have to point to something else. There's not a good enough example. We need, we need an outside definition of agape, an example of it. Look at verse nine. In this... The agape of God, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The word manifest is like demonstrated. It's made clear. It's made tangible. This is the example. If you want to define agape, you've got to look here to figure out what it's like. It's made clear through God sending Jesus. John says, so that we might live through him cost him a lot to love us like that even though he offers it to us generously and freely the incarnation of jesus the redeeming work of jesus dying on the cross raising to life is how you begin to understand agape love and we can't understand what god means when he says god is love until we look at the cross so john's going to unpack it in, in verse 10 look a little bit more here in this is love, in this is agape. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is agape. Like it's not that you love God and then he responded. It's not that you were good and then God responded. It's not that, that you looked at God and said, man, I'm gonna measure up to that dude, right? No, it's that he turned around and looked at you and said, I'm going to love you. Propitiation. Someone say propitiation. That's a fancy word. I want you to write it down. I want you to use it on somebody. Be like, wow, what, what great propitiation today, huh, guys? Right? You don't have to use it in context. They don't know what it means. But I'm going to tell you what it means, okay? Just be fancy for, with me. A propitiation is a reconciling sacrifice. It's a payment for the punishment of sin. Propitiation is, is like diverting wrath. Wrath is going to come, and, and you propitiate to remove that wrath through a sacrifice, through something like that. It's a payment for our sins. So what is sin? Like if I stopped you on the street or if someone in connection group said, hey, what is sin? What would you say? Like again, you might give examples. You might list things that you should do or shouldn't do. 
But how would you actually define sin in its core, in its essence? Sin is anything that goes against God's character and his nature. Like he's the source of truth, so lies go against him by his very nature, right? Like a lie is, is out of sync, it's out of harmony. It's like playing two notes that don't work together. It's out of sync with his nature. He's the source of justice. So injustice is abhorrent to him. It's opposite of who he is as the source of justice. He's the source of agape, selfless, self-giving, overflowing love. So our greed, our selfishness, our looking out for ourselves, or, or even using other people for our pleasure, for our comfort, for our identity, that is against his character and nature. And you're thinking like, I don't use people, whatever. How do you feel when, when that person doesn't text you back? Like, do you feel wronged? How did you feel when you had that breakup? Did you feel like part of you was ripped apart? Or how do you feel about the new relationship you're in? Do you feel like more whole of a person because of it? Like you and I violate God's character and nature, his agape, by the way we treat other people and use other people. It's sin. And God is the only one worth our lives and our hearts and our honor and our worship. In a thousand ways, big and small, we stiff arm him. We reject him. We live out of line with his character. Because we deserve the justice of God. That's not good news. True justice looks like punishment and condemnation if he's going to be true to the fact that God is agape. If it was up to you to love God enough to be saved or to try hard enough to be saved, to be good enough to be saved, you and I would be screwed. We'd be hopeless. We'd be dead in the water, no chance at all. One sin against a holy, perfect God is an infinite gap. Just one, game over. Like the gap between zero and one is infinite. And I've had more than one sin. Like I don't know you that well, but I, I put money on the fact that you've sinned more than once too. But God puts his agape love on display. Like he makes it manifest, he makes it apparent by sending Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. You can't define God's agape apart from Jesus. He's the example, the total package, the clear picture of what God means when he says love. That's the example. But if we stopped there, that still might not be good news, right? Like if I'm like, hey, Jesus was perfect. Go out, give it your best. Good luck, right? That's not good news at all because I'm, I'm still screwed. It's like, thanks for your forgiveness. I, I'm still bad at loving people, okay? But he goes somewhere deeper. He actually does something more for us than just give us an example. He transforms our motivation. Let me finish our passage and read 11 and 12. Beloved, there's your identity again. He goes back to your identity. Beloved, if God so loved us, it's the example. We also ought to love one another. There's the command. But check this out. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. 
John's saying some crazy stuff there, but he's trying to get a hold of your motivation, and he's trying to expose it to the light of what Jesus did. Let's, let's talk through that really quick. If God agape to us, we turn around and we agape each other. When he says no one has seen God, he means we haven't seen God's completeness, his fullness, the total picture. Like you and I, this side of eternity can't see all of God because we would be undone. But we actually can experience more of God this side of eternity. He says God's love is perfected in us. He's not saying God's love is imperfect, right? He's not saying God has some love he's still got to work on over there. But, but this word is actually based on a Greek word, telos. That's like the ending, like the, the, the final form, the thing it's working towards. God's love is brought to its full purpose and expression when we love each other. Like it's made tangible. It goes somewhere. It hasn't yet been expressed when we love each other. Like when you love another believer, you're putting flesh to the love that God has, that he's always had. God's love extends somewhere greater and farther when you take this up and you begin to live it out. That's one of the amazing things about agape. Like, this is mind-blowing to me. It's been causing me to worship as I've been studying for this passage. Any of the other kinds of loves have a limit to them. And when you give them out, they're gone, right? Like, you can't have multiple favorite colors. I'm sorry. doesn't work, right? You have one favorite color. You can't have multiple favorite foods. You can like a bunch of foods, but, but, but there's a limit to that. You can't have a thousand best friends, right? It doesn't work. Try to keep up with all of them. You will fail, right? You, you have a limit to how much of that. And eros, romantic love goes bad when you try to spread it across multiple people. It was made in a special covenant. All of the other loves have a limit to them, but agape is different. Agape, you actually get more of it when you give it out. Like God displayed more of his agape, not when he kept it to himself and, and stayed in the Trinity and had a good time, but but when he actually put on flesh and entered eternity or entered, entered our timeline to invite us into eternity, more agape was spread. And he's looking at you and going, do you want more? All you got to do is give it away. All you got to do is, is bend and extend the kind of love that I've shown you. If you show other people that, my love goes further on display. Your life is a canvas. And he wants to paint his agape more and more as a beautiful picture through you. That's pretty cool. Like that you could experience and enjoy more of God and his love by loving other people that he also loves. That's amazing news. Our love for one another is part of our enjoyment of God. So here's the deal. If you, if you don't love other Christians, you actually get to enjoy less of God. Like you, you get to enjoy less of his character and nature, not because he's holding out on you, but because you're holding yourself back from all that he has for you. And he's not saying go off and, and try really hard to do it. He actually moved first to love you. He's not asking you to go anywhere. He's not already been. He's inviting you to follow after and experience more of it. Our identity is as loved people beloved people. The command is to love one another. The example is Jesus, agape in flesh. But our motivation is, is actually how Jesus' love continues to overflow in our lives. Not one and done, 
not one day I accepted it, but I enjoy it over and over. I experience his love over and over as he allows me to love other people that he loves. I'm invited into the love of God as I love people that God loves. I, uh, I got to talk through this passage. This was a couple years ago with a, with a student. Um, I'm going to tell a story. It's the last night, whatever. Um, so, so I was salt director here um, up to a couple months ago, and I get a, a text from a student after one night at Salt Company, right? I'm trying to meet new students. I, I see this person I'm like, hey, let's hang out, whatever. And they go, hey, let's get coffee. Sweet, let's go. I love coffee. Um, opening line of the conversation, hey, I'm trans and I was out of it my last ministry, and so um, I just don't want you to do that for me here. Hi, what's your name again? I'm Nathan. Like, how are we doing? Um, I, I, I was surprised, but not really like that caught off guard. I was like, okay, can we like hang out? Let's talk. You know, like, where are you? Are you a Christian? Are you not? Like, where are you at with God? Like, let's just have a conversation. We started meeting just about every week to just talk about life and talk about Jesus. And, and essentially, here's the cheating thing I did. I just use it for my sermon prep, right? I'm going to just talk through this passage with you. We'll see what happens. Um, and, and we got to this passage, God is love. And I just asked them, I'll, I'll call him Mac. I said, okay, Mac, God is love. What is love, right? Mac didn't say, not you, Mac. I don't know. Who, you're not, not you. A different Mac. Um, Mac is a pseudonym. Someone say pseudonym. You are smart people. Um, what is love? And Mac goes, well, love is accepting people for who they are, right? How many of you have heard some version of that before? Raise a hand. Yep, accepting people for who they are. I was like, why is that love, right? I'm a little bit of a snot sometimes, right? Like, why is that love? And we both sat there for a minute. We're like, huh, I don't know. Because if I'm genuinely not like a great person or in a great place, accepting me for where I'm at isn't really that loving, right? Like if I'm a greedy, selfish, mean person, just accepting me for where I'm at, is, that's not really good for me or for anyone else. So just accepting people where they're at, that's not really loving, right? Max like, yep, totally right. But here's the deal. Christians have done a really bad job understanding where people are at. Like, true. <laughs> like, that is very true. Christians often, people like me, people like many of you, do a really bad job of, of seeing somebody where they're at and not just where we expect them to be. Not just writing a story over them. I'm like, man, as you tell me your story, you have heartache and brokenness in your family and with other churches. Like, I get it. Totally. Christians do a bad job understanding but again, if I'm like a really terrible person, like if I'm greedy and selfish and mean and you do a good job understanding me, still not that loving, right? Yeah, we, we agree on that. Okay. There's got to be something more to love than that. Like there's got to be a picture for what it means to not be a greedy person, right? Like, like if I understand where you're at, I also want to understand what it means for you to be whole and flourishing and alive and healthy, right? Like we can agree that that actually there is something good for your life, who you should be. Just understanding isn't really loving. But if you're stuck with the gap between who you should be and where you're at, and I do a really good job acknowledging those two things, that still isn't so much love, does it? Okay, so we're asking each other really good questions and we're kind of stuck in this thing. And it's like, okay, real love is understanding where someone's at, understanding what flourishing and health and wholeness and being fully human means, and it's being the kind of person that's willing to be in the process with them, right? That seems like love, right? If I'm struggling with, with addiction to greed, 
and my spending is out of whack and I got credit card debt up the waz and like, and I'm just spending on myself like nobody's business. You knowing about it and saying, hey man, like I, I wanna help. I'm gonna be with you. Let's talk about your spending. Come, come live with me, cheaper rent. Like we'll buy groceries together. Let's do this thing. That's, that begins to be a picture of love, right? And we, we totally agreed on it. We were on the same page exactly. And I looked at this passage and I go, Mac, it's exactly what Jesus did. Like Jesus completely understood us, right? He didn't stand far away in eternity and perfection and go, humans, figure it out. He stepped into it. He went through puberty, right? He gets you, man. He's been through all of it. And yet he lived in the perfect example of human flourishing and perfection and sinlessness. He walked in relationship with God and people like he did it all. But he didn't just understand you and be a good example. He actually did the only thing to take us along this journey to life and health. He died on the cross to deal with our central issue. It's not just that you have some broken habits. It's not just that you, you need to try harder to figure it out. It's not that you have toxic relationships. Those all might be part of it, but the real root is you have a fundamental separation from the God that gives you life and identity. And when that gets figured out, the rest starts to come in line. Like Jesus is the perfect example of God's love. Mac and I totally agreed. We defined agape together just like talking about it. And tonight, if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your sacrifice, you need him. Before you ever figure out any other issue in your life, you need him. And he's not waiting for you to sort your stuff out. He's extending his hand and saying, come experience my agape for you. The nail scars are proof that he loves you. That he died to pay as a wrath-diverting sacrifice to invite you to the love that God has. And then from there, he empowers us. Like he empowers us to actually be this kind of people. Like he empowers us to actually love like he's loved us. He, he wants our knowledge of him and our enjoyment to grow as he transforms us to love each other. He wants to motivate you by the fact that he loves you. Here's just a sentence I want you to, to think about just to capture this passage. Love one another as loved people. Love one another as loved people. Guys, to do this, you, you need to begin seeing each other. You need to begin seeing ways to actually practically love each other. Like, you need to be looking for that. And another tiny tangent, your phone is probably your greatest enemy to seeing other people. Like, like he, he talks about seeing in this passage, no one's seen the love. It's really difficult if you're wrapped up in, in, in a world of social media or whatever for you to see the needs around you or to have the energy to deal with it. You might feel more connected to those issues, but you're actually connected to ideas and not people, frankly. Like, put your phone away at connection group. Or next time you and your friends are hanging out, put your phones in another room and just talk. Like, how often do we have a, a pause in conversation instead of going in and deep, we, we, we go to our phones, right? That's a whole rabbit trail we can get into. We'll talk about digital theory later, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Loving one another, you begin to see people and then you step in with agape love. That could be a material need. 
that could just be a friend to talk to, that could be riding scooters after salt, that could look like a lot of things overflowing in agape. Turn your eyes up and out and invite the Spirit to help you reflect love to other believers. And maybe that means having a hard conversation. Like maybe that means you actually understand what someone is going through and God is inviting you to talk to them about it. Not with a list of rules of how they should behave better and perform better, but with the gospel. Another believer needs to hear you repeat the good news to them like, hey, you're going through this and this is the kind of sin Jesus died for. Will you let him transform you? Lean in selflessly. Put yourself on the line because you want them to be more in line with their identity and enjoy more of God. Maybe it means apologizing to someone that you failed to agape. Like maybe you need to look at your connection group from this summer and go, guys, I'm sorry, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen your needs, let alone met them. I've been stuck in my own selfish issues. And, and that's, that's kind of where I've been at in, in repenting, getting ready for this message. I've been stuck in my own stuff and too busy and hurried to really love people around me. I got neighbors that they're not believers, but I, I wanted them to experience Christian community and see Christians love each other. I haven't had time for them because I've been busy in my own stuff. I haven't had time for, for the community that I, I really need because I've been busy in my own stuff. What is it that you need to confess and repent of? Love one another's love people. What would happen if we did this? Like, what would happen if we actually began to be this kind of community? I think we'd experience more of God. Like, someone say experience. I'm not just talking no facts about God, but I'm talking enjoying, experiencing for yourself the God of the universe. You would experience more of God if we lived this out. I think we'd be a more healthy expression of God's character, nature to the world through sanctification, through becoming more holy people because we're leaning into these relationships. I think we'd help and protect and strengthen each other. Just like the early Christians did that John wrote to, this tiny persecuted minority that, that took over the Roman Empire. And I think the world would be or curious about a group of Christians like that. The Romans were. The Chinese government couldn't stop Christianity spreading under Mao or today because Christians live this out. If it happened in China under communism, it can happen here. It can happen in your hometown. It can happen on your campus or in your dorm. It can happen. People seeing the agape love of God manifest as we take our identity as loved people to those places, as we love each other with the love we've been given by Jesus. I'm going to invite the band. Come on up. I didn't tell you guys I'm doing this. I'm just thinking about it now. Um, I want you guys to close your eyes. If you were already asleep, stay sleeping. Um, guys, can you just start playing the chords from whatever first song is? Thanks. As you're closing your eyes, I want you to um, pray for a minute. And ask God to help you want to experience more of him. I don't think the issue is knowing the command. I don't think the issue is reading the text. I don't know if we want God enough.
God, I confess I don't want you enough. I want a neat, tidy life. I want my schedule to work the way I want it to. I want my dreams and my plans and my future the way I want it. I don't want, I don't want to experience you enough, so my heart isn't motivated the way it should be by your love. relationships more than we want that shows up in the way that we post that shows up in where our hearts are, are pulled our energy our time our money we've been desperate to experience our reputations to be known by characteristics of the Because you 